The sensors can't penetrate the planet's ionosphere. There's too much interference. Can you find a way to scan for life forms? I would be happy to, sir. I just love scanning for life forms. Life forms. You tiny little life forms. You precious little life forms. Where are you? In Star Trek Generations, Data seems overjoyed to be scanning for life forms. But what exactly is he looking for? In Episode 8 of Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast, Elise and I ask Cecilia Sanders, what is a biosignature? The point of Strange New Worlds is to talk about science, technology, and culture through the lens of Star Trek. Sometimes on this podcast, we will look at specific instances of science and technology phenomenon that crop up in a specific episode of Star Trek, like we did in episode five, where we brought in Heidi Klumpa to talk about how the Klingons lost their cranial ridges and the actual biology behind that. Other times on this podcast, we'll be talking about words or themes in Star Trek that kind of permeate the universe. Just things that I want to know more about, like what is a warp bubble? Or how does a Heisenberg compensator work? Or what does it mean to polarize the hull plating? Well, in today's what I'll call Treknobabble episode, the theme is going to be biosigns, also known as life signs or biosignatures. And to help us understand what a biosign really means, we have Cecilia Sanders in the studio with us today. Welcome, Cecilia. Welcome Hi. aboard. Hi, guys. Nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Cecilia, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I am a first-year graduate student at Caltech, and though I am a member of the Planetary Science Department, and though I have an undergraduate degree in Earth and Planetary Science and Astrophysics and you know, thinking about distant worlds, um, most of my actual research takes place right here on Earth. So using Earth, the one world where we know that there is life and has been life for a long time, and learning as much as we can about that process and applying it to other worlds, the search for life on other worlds, and our speculation about how life might begin anywhere in the universe. How'd you get into Star Trek? Yeah, so... I got into Star Trek largely because of my mother. So my mother was born in 1963, um, and she was the only child, um, adopted daughter of my grandmother, who's a very formidable and stern and intense, but very loving um, black family matriarch. And she was a very no-nonsense kind of person, but my mother was always this very, whimsical kind of spirit and so Star Trek came out um, the original series came out at a time when my mother was still very much a child and still very much you know big dreams big eyes and all of that so she grew up watching Uhura explore new worlds and talk to alien species and go on adventures and so she remembers playing as a kid and being uh, you know Uhura's little sister running around on the Enterprise and you know stowing away on adventures. She and her, you know, her cousin, my Aunt Jackie, would, 
you know, they inserted themselves into this world. And so my mom has seen every episode of the original series, every episode of Next Generation, every episode of... She just, you know, she loved it. And it was something that carried through to her adulthood, even though she ended up uh, ultimately not pursuing um, science. But she, you know, she loved that sense of wonder that it gave her. She loved the adventure. She loved the lessons and when she had her own children, all of us were plopped down on of the couch course. and yeah. yeah, made to watch this kind of silly, kind of dated show and, you know, learn important life lessons about diversity and believing in yourself and believing in your friends and all of this. So um, so definitely my mom is the major Trekkie and all of us were brought into it by uh, as sort of a family tradition. So long answer to a short question. Oh, that's, but that's great. Um, anyone in my age group who got into it either had a parent, like, plop them down on the couch and, like, <laughs> you are going to Star Trek church now, my child, like, um, this is your religion now, um, or fell into it through 2009 because mm-hmm. that was, like, flashy, new effects, mm-hmm. like, cool cast, really awesome, like, named actors. So we, we saw it and then we're like, oh, I love Star Trek. And then our parents were like, hey, hey, you. I used to watch Star Trek. It's cool, right? <laughs> If you like that, you're going to love <laughs> of this. Yeah, all of this all other hours of content. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of catchy, cool special effects and a great cast, we have upcoming a new series of Star Trek called Star Trek Discovery. Cecilia, I'm sure you've seen the news about that. How yeah. excited are you for Star Trek Discovery? I'm super excited. And, you know, definitely the thing that my mom really impressed upon us about the importance of Star Trek was, you know, the vision for the future that it offered. I'm definitely excited to see um, such a diverse cast and strong female characters, and I don't even know what they're going to be doing. I'm just excited that they're there and doing it. So, Like that first trailer that they put out, it opens up with, like, two women who are not white just, like, doing something cool on stage by themselves with no, like, male backup or anything else just for for a long time in Hollywood kind of timescales, which is incredible because usually when you see diversity in the past, it's kind of propped up by what's kind of seen as acceptable, like Hollywood standard, Definitely. kind of as a fallback to it. But they're like, they've gotten to a point with Star Trek where they're like, this is just what the world looks like. And yeah. this is like, these are the people who are going to follow. And like the, the, the ship that we first get introduced to in Star Trek doesn't even have an English name in, in Discovery, which is oh. pretty cool. Yeah, as well. Definitely. It just, you know, it warms my heart. <laughs> and, and it's it's crazy that that is something that amazes and excites me. I know, me, in 2017. But, yeah. We'll but take what we can get right now, right? Definitely. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, definitely psyched about that and excited for... And also, like, for what it means to have, like, characters of characters of color and female characters and everything who are flawed. Like, it's not like, you know, Star Trek has never explored the idea of flawed female characters or something, but a lot of the time um, in science fiction and fantasy and just fiction in general, I think, um, definitely minority characters end up being less character and more, like, moral like, you know. like an idea <laughs> yeah like people are afraid of treating yeah. people like people absolutely yeah. so so i'm excited to have flaws and complexity and messiness or whatever so and, you're probably happy yeah. about that breaking the roddenberry rule yeah uh, yeah i yeah. was i was too i think i mean mike and i have talked about this before 
Yeah, Mike's shaking his head. <laughs> the thing is, I didn't know there was such yeah, a me, rule. Yeah, me neither. Is the thing. Like, I had never heard that until, like... Like, Enterprise, really, when, I think as pretty much as soon as Gene Roddenberry wasn't around, there wasn't a Roddenberry rule anymore. Because the, the later series def- certainly have, like, prolonged intercrew conflict, but... Yep. Sometimes you gotta, you know, you gotta fight people to the death. To prove <laughs> your honor and yeah, find your mate. And yeah, absolutely. Nothing you can Sometimes do wrestling that. around with your captain also somehow <laughs> satisfies that biological urge. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think uh, I, I was actually reminded of that episode, um, A Mock Time, where Spock has to go and fight Captain yeah. Kirk to the death <laughs> because he's in Pond Far. Yeah. And I was like, hey, this is a great podcast idea. We should, we should totally do a like, uh, on, on Like, like animal, animal mating, mating rituals. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Who, so, who studies that here? Well, I, I, I tried to reach out to a few biology friends, but apparently it's too applied for Caltech. Nobody oh, here actually studies that. <laughs> so we're going to have to go searching. Okay, so we've sort of segued into science. Was Star Trek an influence on your choice to pursue a scientific career? It was certainly an influence. I don't know if it was the origin of my motivations necess- necessarily, but it was definitely a definitely an influence and a motivator. Science fiction in general and the idea of what I guess you could call abstract good, you know, like engaging the sense of wonder and curiosity that all humans have and then using that connecting thread as a way to bring people together and science sort of being the proof that um, you don't necessarily have to be uh, competitive or fighting to get ahead in order to drive human progress but that you can collaborate and share ideas and forge alliances and you know end up with this broad international community of creative thinkers and technical whizzes, you know, who can go do amazing things like that philosophy. And I think that sort of ties back to that philosophy of Star Trek, which is sort of reminiscent of the Roddenberry rule, where the main point of Star Trek is that it is about a group of people who come together despite their differences to tackle large odds rather than finding the drama between themselves necessarily for every episode. And their differences are strengths, you know, too. Mm -hmm. I've started watching The Next Generation again and recognizing things in episodes that I'd never noticed or just completely went over my head as a kid, like little things like Captain Picard's, the way that his bridge is set up so that he can sit in a circle with his closest advisors and ask their opinions, and he turns to everyone in the room and it's like, okay, I want to hear your scientific perspective, I want to hear your technical analysis, I want to hear your analysis as someone who's biologically predisposed to be empathetic, mm-hmm. you know, um, like, what do you feel from this weird void in space, you yeah. know, yeah. like, and taking all of that into consideration before making a decision. And we're speaking about Counselor Troy there, yeah, right? yeah, and Captain yeah. Picard's like left side all the time. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. Troy is probably the uh, the the most underrated character. She's anti Spock. Yeah, <laughs> sure. She's she's that too. Yeah, she but she bases it, everything on emotion. It's yeah. It's it's something that I think you were talking about, like differences being strength in Star Trek. Really. At times, um, it really falls back on just like science, 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 mm-hmm. technobabble science. But it, it, as it matured, it started to acknowledge and appreciate these kind of other ways of knowing and mm-hmm. like appreciating kind of like folk wisdom of the alien planets they'd find rather than just steamrolling in with phasers blazing and, like, and emotion, emotional intuition. Like Next Gen gives us an alien that feels deeply instead of one that uses not feeling as their way of knowing so 
that's a complete flip and it's just it's it's cool to see it put on the same pedestal interestingly i remember being young and really wanting to be like deanna troy yeah when I watched the show with my mom, like, mm-hmm. oh, like her hair is beautiful and she's really nice and everyone respects her. Yeah, but and she's she has got really good ideas. Power, but a... it's not like violent, aggressive power. Yeah, it's just yeah. like respect and composure. And, and her suit was a different color she's than everyone. Very feminine, stuck with me. but at the same time, like completely respected. Yeah, this is yeah. amazing. Because, I mean, the security officer, Tasha Yar, is, like, mm. the complete opposite. Like, she's anti-feminine, like, very, very much just, like, sort of one of the guys. She's so in contrast to Diana, and they both command respect, but in completely different ways. Yeah. Like, you don't have to shun any part of your identity. You can be who you want in Star Trek, and people will still find value in you, which is cool. Definitely, yeah. So, yeah. You know. My mom always says, like, okay, everything comes back to Star Trek. Like... Whenever she, like, had some piece of wisdom to share or something, like, that was like, you know, okay, remember in this one episode when? I'm like, no, Mom, I don't remember. Like, but, but I like how you tell it. That's our so, new folk you know. wisdom Star Trek. <laughs> Definitely. Star Trek is all about exploring strange new worlds and seeking out new, new life. life. Right. Yeah. So usually the way it happens is it's not very dramatic actually because there's <laughs> yeah, life all over the Star yeah. Trek universe. They just run up to a planet, yeah. they scan, scan it, it. <laughs> and maybe they beam down. Maybe somebody whips out a tricorder. There's like some interesting noises that emanate from the tricorder, and then somebody announces there's a biosign X meters ahead. And I'm really curious about what a biosign actually is. After all, we think that it's going to be really hard to find evidence for extraterrestrial life Mm -hmm. out in the universe because, well, we haven't done it yet. Mm -hmm. And we're developing new technologies and new techniques to go searching for that life. And eventually, one day, my hope is that somebody, maybe you, Cecilia, (laughs) you're going to report that you have found a biosignature on some other (laughs) world. And what is that going to be? What is that actually going to look like? How do we go about looking for life? Yeah, there are so many different things that constitute a biosign or a biosignature, and almost none of them in isolation is enough to prove that sort of thing to the scientific community. Um, For example, if you're looking at another planet's atmosphere, which is difficult but possible to do sometimes if the planet is orbiting its star at the right angle that the planet can pass in front of or behind the star, and we can see some of the light from the star, the spectrum across, you know, you have a range of wavelengths and the spectrum will change um, when it, a small amount of that star's light passes through the planet's atmosphere mm-hmm. um, or the planet's atmosphere passes behind the planet and you lose the signature of the planet. So, so the basic idea is that different atoms, different molecules, similarly to things like a spring or a building or, you know, any any physical system you can imagine, it has certain resonant frequencies. If you shake it just the right way or you excite it with just the right amount of energy, you can make it shake extremely violently or with a, uh, uh, this is the problem we have with earthquakes, you know, in California. How do you build a building that doesn't have these, what we call resonant modes that will cause it to shake so much that it falls down? Mm -hmm. Um, So atoms and molecules do this as well. We are interested in this intrinsic shaking that they have, the way that they bend, the way that they stretch, 
or even just the way that the electrons that are orbiting their nucleus, the way that they get excited and then fall back to a less excited state when they expend all of their energy. Because this property allows us to detect those gases um, or detect those, I shouldn't just say gases, in this case it's gases, but uh, it allows us to detect those materials just looking at how light interacts with them. So different wavelengths of light are associated with different amounts of energy. So when you shine a light on a particular substance, some of those wavelengths are going to excite those resonant modes in those molecules, so it will appear to the observer as if those wavelengths of light are being absorbed. Um, so you might get bites taken out of your spectrum. Um, and sometimes you can get emissions again, so you excite an electron that's on an atom. And the electron jumps to a more excited state and then falls back. And when it falls back, it's releasing energy. It's like letting out a sigh, and, but that mm. sigh is a photon. Um, and that photon has a particular energy to it, and therefore it has a particular wavelength to it. So you can get so much information about the composition of anything by just looking at how it interacts with light. And light, of course, there's a light that we see. Our eyes are sensitive to the visible spectrum, which is where the light from our own sun peaks. Um, so there's a whole other interesting tangent in uh, evolutionary biology that you could get into there, but that's where we see, so we call, call it the visible. But there are lower energy wavelengths below the visible. Infrared um, is the important one for this topic, and there are more energetic wavelengths, and that's like ultraviolet light. So some of these words get tossed around a little bit in mm -hmm. Star Trek and other science fiction series and everything, but that's all they mean is these different wavelengths or energy levels. So if you're looking at another planet's atmosphere, you see certain wavelengths of light getting bitten out of the star's spectrum whenever the planet comes between us and the star itself, then you can read those chunks that get taken out and interpret them as, okay, this is oxygen, or this is carbon monoxide, or some other component. And so when you can actually go to the surface of a planet, so if you're approaching that planet from a distance, this might be the only information you have to determine whether or not there's life there. So on our own planet, most of the oxygen in our atmosphere uh, comes from photosynthetic life. So green plants and cyanobacteria, which used to be called blue-green algae, fixing inorganic carbon, sucking up carbon dioxide from the atmosphere just through the process of their metabolism, releasing oxygen out again. And so if we see oxygen in other planets' atmosphere, whoa, maybe that's a biosign. Maybe there's photosynthetic life there. But oxygen alone might not be enough, you know. So on our planet, oxygen's a biosign, but on another planet, maybe oxygen is just there because there's a lot of high-energy radiation from the star, and it's breaking up water molecules in the atmosphere instead. And water, as you might know, H2O, high-energy radiation, splits that molecule, so hydrogen floats away, and boom, suddenly you've got a very oxygen-rich atmosphere, and photosynthetic organisms were never involved. So, so if you're looking for a biosign at a distance, you might want to look for oxygen and something like methane, you know, which mm. again on Earth is a very, uh, well, I think 95% of the methane um, produced in Earth's atmosphere comes from living organisms, a combination of methanogenic bacteria and things like cows, which 
fart a lot. I produce <laughs> a lot of methane. Um, I was going to say myself, but... There you go. There you go. Or people too. Yeah. People too. How are you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so... Those are some of the, so you might look for a combination of things where you know um, oxygen being produced and methane being produced actively together. Right. Um, so they're not canceling each other out. They're not just turning into carbon. So the oxygen will react with the methane, produce more carbon dioxide. In order to prevent that happening, you just have to keep pumping out more and more methane. So biology is a very effective way of doing that. So seeing those two things together in the atmosphere of an alien planet you might say, hey, like, that's probably pretty good evidence that something like these biological processes on Earth is going on. But yeah, so that's that's an example of a biosign you would look at from a great distance. Well, let me see if I can recap that. We're, we're looking for a life around a distant star. We're, we're looking at the light that is transmitted through the atmosphere of that star, looking for the spectral signatures Finger of fingerprints. Print. Yeah. yeah. Uh, to find out what that atmosphere is made of. And we're looking for molecules that are produced primarily by life on Earth. Mm -hmm. And there are abiotic ways to produce oxygen and abiotic ways to produce methane, but when we see them in conjunction with one another, they should destroy they should, each other. Yeah, it's a disequilibria that would be resolved, but life's good at making things weird. Right. So yeah. because they exist together out of equilibrium, as Elise says, mm -hmm. it means they both need to have a large flux into the atmosphere. And those abiotic sources are generally not enough to yeah. maintain that coexisting. <laughs> can presence. confirm as somebody who thinks about like geologic time scale, these, these kinds of things take forever, but life can do stuff so fast. But yeah, I think that the, the real takeaway here was that you're looking for something weird mm. wherever you're looking. So this method would be something that Starfleet itself might use to screen for inhabited planets, yeah. um, planets that might have life with them before they uh, send one of their vessels, <laughs> vessels uh, out. To, go and, to go investigate it. So that would be biosigns at a distance. You have a lot more to work with if you go physically to a place um, with your instruments, you know, in a backpack, or you set up some kind of remote laboratory um, and start collecting samples and things. And we do that, actually. We send things to other planets. Uh, maybe we haven't sent any backpacks yet, but it's, it, it is my hope that we will someday soon. Um, Come on, Elon Musk. <laughs> or NASA, one or the other, or both. Um, so, NASA just announced they don't have the money to send people to Mars. NASA announces lots of things. It changes its <laughs> mind every five years, depending on who's in, in Congress. Yeah, that's true. That's <laughs> so, very true. The scientists uh, just plug along. Yeah. 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 But <laughs> we nonetheless, we, we have things on other worlds. And uh, Cecilia, so what, what do we look for when we send one of our spacecraft or landers or rovers to another planet? Yeah. So there's a few different answers to that. So sometimes we send an orbiter. To another planet. So we send a small craft that will circle around the planet at some set distance or maybe even just fly by a planet on its way to another destination. And so certainly it's closer than looking at a planet around a distant star, but in those cases it's you know the same general science. You're looking for 
spectral information. So you're seeing how light interacts with the atmosphere of the world that you're flying by or how it bounces off of the surface. Um, if you're seeing in a wavelength that can allow you to penetrate through the atmosphere and look at the surface directly and you're trying to figure out what it's made of and decide whether or not the things that it's made of are biotic, abiotic, in equilibrium or some sort of sustained disequilibrium. So from orbit around the Earth, for example, because the Earth is, you know, certainly the first place where we look for and try to characterize and understand climate and biosignatures and all of that. On Earth, we have satellites that do things like monitor the extent of certain types of forests, certain types of trees. So different types of plants, different types of bacteria, they'll all have they have certain pigments associated with them even. So from orbit, you can distinguish between a certain type of forest, a healthy forest and a sick forest, a forest that's been overrun by this particular type of leaf rot or something like that. So that's distinguishing among different types of biosignatures and trying to get information about the life that actually is there. If you were just looking for any kind of biosignature at all, detecting any of those pigments would be great. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, if you could detect a complex organic molecule, an example of which, you know, would be something like, uh, so chlorophyll. Most people are familiar with chlorophyll, the pigment that allows most green plants I say most, but allows most green plants to take the energy from the sun and use it to manufacture their own food, their own structural materials um, in order to perpetuate themselves. Um, so chlorophyll can't make that abiotically, really. Mm -hmm. It's it a complex... really yeah. weird under spectra. There's Definitely. Just, like, it yeah. doesn't look like any kind of mineral that you'd ever see. Absolutely, Minerals yeah. tend to be pretty consistent the way they absorb, like, even across different classes of minerals, because I, I work on mineral spectroscopy, so I'm like, yes, spectra. Yeah, Something yeah. I can actually comment intelligently about. Yeah, um, spectra's but, powerful. Yeah, they, they, minerals have, like, very well-defined absorption characteristics, and usually if you're looking at a spectrum, you can... Even if you don't know exactly what it is, you're like, oh, well, that like weird blobish kind of absorption over there is definitely because there's a lot of iron in this thing. I don't know what this is, but it's definitely an iron-rich rock. Mm -hmm. But chlor yeah. chlorophyll absorbs in a place that minerals tend not to. Um, it absorbs in a shape. Like, the shape of the absorption is really sharp and weird. Yeah. So, so similarly any, to how... Yeah, it's the same kind of thing that you were talking about with finding something just kind of off. Yeah, yeah. That, that you can explain else, else, like, life's kind of the last resort explanation, mm -hmm. it kind of sounds like. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of mineral spectroscopy, minerals can also provide an important biosignature. So right now I'm working on a project involving what we call chemosynthetic life. So mm. rather than photosynthetic, using light to, you know, get the energy the organism needs to perform all of its life functions, it's a an organism that uses... Uh, ambient chemical energy, not from eating other organisms, but from just some disequilibria, um, I love that word, um, that might exist in its, in, in its environment. So sometimes you can get a some sort of gradient of energies or a gradient of charge, you know, or something across a surface, and there are organisms that have evolved to take advantage of that. And when they do, they leave behind their own types of biosignatures. They facilitate the deposition of new types of minerals where there weren't minerals before and they might do it in such a way that leaves patterns that would be difficult to produce without something like a cell body or like a membrane or something to uh, to grow upon. So it's possible even from orbit you might look for a particular assemblage of minerals 
that might support a certain type of chemosynthetic organism. And then you might look for the types of minerals that those chemosynthetic organisms are known to deposit themselves. And seeing them up against each other, um, you know, on the surface of a planet, or if you're a rover sitting on the surface and you're looking at an outcrop a few meters away from you and deciding where you're going to drive next to take a sample, um, you can see these minerals at a distance and say, okay, yeah, like the minerals that are here tell us that there was enough chemical energy for this type of bacteria to sustain itself. And look, here's some minerals that indicate maybe it did use those <laughs> minerals that were available to it to sustain itself. Having introduced the concept of biosignatures at large, Cecilia tells us more about her research on chemosynthetic life forms. And we discuss how we think a tricorder works next time on Strange New Worlds. See you out there.